Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wazalowski, and it's time to talk tech. In this episode, we'll hear about the powers and perils of free speech from a journalist, a playwright, and a digital strategist turned political candidate. All three spoke at the Future of Speech Online, an event hosted by CDT at the museum. They were asked to reflect on what the future holds for all speakers in our digitally connected world. We'll first hear from Carlos Maza, a video producer at Vox, who questions whether the best ideas always win in the digital marketplace of ideas. He's followed by Stand Up Republic's co-founder, Mindy Finn, who tracks her journey from tech optimist to tech realist and shares her concerns about the impact of some online speech on our democracy. And finally, we hear from Jennifer Haley, a playwright who is exploring the boundaries of the online and offline world and how we navigate a world where those boundaries are increasingly blurred. Each brings a unique and compelling perspective on what online speech may look like in the future. I hope you enjoy. And to start us off, we're going to have Vox video producer Carlos Maza. Come on up. Hi, everyone. Uh, I want to start the speech by saying I am suspicious of my own argument. Um, and I'm skeptical of what I'm about to say. So if during this speech you think that guy's dumb, know that there's a part inside of my head that also agrees with you completely. <laughs> um, the argument I want to make is that we need better arguments against censorship of speech. Um, so if you don't know who I am, there's a reason for that. I'm just some dude who convinced a nonprofit in DC to make, let me make videos on the internet, and they did. And then I convinced a news website to let me, let me do it. I did not go to J school. I did not produce videos uh, in college. Um, my experience making videos is making really bad YouTube vlogs about coming out when I was in high school and college, like really bad, <laughs> that you can no longer find on the internet. Um, uh, but the point is that my trajectory and the reason that I'm on this stage is a testament to how the low barrier to entry empowers a lot of voices and means that there are very few gatekeepers to people having um, a voice in the public square. Um, that is good because I think I'm a good person and I'm doing good things. Um, the reality is that a lot of people have used that uh, to really destructive ends. And if you look at basically any major publishing platform online, there's this really bizarre debate about how do we deal with the fact that our pages are getting turned into white supremacist websites and we don't know how to control it. Um, YouTube is dealing with it, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Reddit, uh, basically every major publisher is dealing with this fight. Um, and that should make you nervous. Uh, the alt-right is like essentially a digital operation. Um, it's like white supremacy and neo-Nazi if they knew how to use WordPress, um, uh, which is very scary. Um, the fact that there is scary speech that challenges our feelings about censorship is not new. Uh, what I think is new is that the digital era has made a lot of our best arguments against censorship not make that much sense anymore. Um, or maybe be flat out wrong. Uh, again, I, I see angry stares. I know I could be wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just wanna like test this. I'm like pushing out my toddler to see if he can walk and he might fall, but um, be generous with my toddler. Um, so one argument we have against censorship is that uh, the marketplace of ideas naturally filters out uh, bad thought. Um, that even if you're allowed to say awful things, that the audience will turn on you, uh, you'll like lose your big news network platform, um, and that people will walk away. Uh, that seems to be not that true anymore um, because the barrier to entry is so low. 
that people who say really heinous stuff that would prevent them from getting booked on CNN have like hundreds of thousands of followers on YouTube because all you need is a camera and a really authoritative voice or maybe a British accent helps. Um, there really is no gatekeeper that stops you from monetizing hate speech on YouTube, uh, and that is really scary. Um, also, you can publish a lot of that stuff anonymously, which is not new, but um, I did a video uh, for Vox where I had to watch a lot of Tucker Carlson for a long time. Um, and after a while, my YouTube page just became like really, really fringe alt-right people because it kept getting recommended to me. And a lot of those people are doing it without showing their face and without using their name. And so there's like very little disincentive from them for them to stop using hate speech or to moderate in a way that you might expect in normal platforms where you thought, um, I'm not going to get booked on CNN anymore. Um, a second argument in defense of free speech is that the answer to bad ideas is good ideas. It's like this, the dis best disinfectant is sunlight. Um, if you have the marketplace, people will argue against it. Um, and that's a very compelling argument. Uh, the problem with it is that I don't think it's true in practice. Um, the nature of networks like YouTube and Facebook is that they're incentivized to make your viewpoint um, be reflected in what you're looking at. They're naturally insular because there's no corporate or profit incentive to show you a countering view. If you were on YouTube and you were a Tucker Carlson fan and every time you went on, YouTube was recommending pro-Islam videos, you would stop using YouTube. Or if your Facebook feed was just like, don't be awful, diversity is good, you would stop using Facebook. And so Facebook and YouTube's algorithms are incentivized to take you down the rabbit hole. And that was my experience researching Tucker Carlson is I was like, why is Richard Spencer in my recommended videos? Oh my God, no one can ever see this. Um, and it's because there's a corporate incentive to not expose you to the marketplace, but rather to take you further and further into the fringe. Um, also, the nature of these formats is that they're intrinsically authoritarian. YouTube videos are, by their nature, not democratic. It's a dude with a British accent talking to you for nine minutes with a lot of confidence and not including alternative views, which is not what happens on CNN. I can't believe I'm defending CNN, but it's a different format. So that exchange of ideas, the ability to be exposed to alternate viewpoints, um, doesn't happen. Also, I'm suspicious psychologically about that argument. There's like good social sci or psychological research that shows that just showing someone uh, contradictory evidence or corrective information does not actually change their minds, which is like so frustrating for free speech advocates because we want to believe that just showing somebody a better argument will change their mind. In practice, most people tend to double down. Um, some people call it the backfire effect. There's like a debate about whether or not that's true, but it is very difficult to dislodge someone's idea once it's lodged in place because of the way the human brain works. Um, so trying to correct someone's bad view on YouTube or Facebook is actually way harder than just prohibiting the bad view outright. Um, and the third argument, I think, for the purpose of the speech is that if you shut down bad speech, it'll go underground and that makes it worse. Um, which is, again, super compelling, really hard to measure. Um, it's also probably not true anymore because of the way that these platforms have become monopolized. If you lose access to YouTube, if you lose access to Facebook, you actually don't have many other places you can go to mount an effective response or get your message out there, which is why alt-right YouTubers, if you go to any alt-right YouTuber's webpage right now, almost assuredly, the last video they posted is, YouTube is censoring me, YouTube is awful. They're freaking out about it because they recognize that a huge part of their reach does require access to those uh, low-cost, wide-reach platforms. So theoretically, if you shut those down, you could actually have a big impact. Um, that's the easy part of the speech. Uh, the tough part is, okay, so what? Um, and this is the part where my inner skeptic is like, they're going to bomb. Um, the big government progressive in me is very worried about corporate censorship, um, is very scared of Facebook or YouTube telling me, what is or is not an acceptable viewpoint. 
the like teenage anarcho-feminist in me is very suspicious of government regulation of that speech. Does not want anyone in government power tell me what kind of speech works. Um, and the good thing is that because the speech is short, I get to say, I don't have time to talk about solutions, I just wanted to ask questions. Um, which is true. Uh, I don't know the answer. And this is why I'm so anxious about making this argument is because um, every path out looks wrong. I will say, to close, um, that one thing that every digital platform seems to have in common is that when they do measure what speech can or cannot be banned, there's this clear threshold that calls for violence are outside of the realm of acceptable speech. That if you call for violence on a YouTube video, we'll shut down your video. If you're calling for violence um, on Twitter, we'll shut down your account. Um, the reason why is because those platforms all agree that some speech is too threatening to the democratic system to tolerate. That we don't trust the marketplace of ideas to correct that, or we don't want to risk it. Um, and so I'd want to close by just saying that I think it's worth revisiting where we draw that line, um, why we draw that line, and whether or not our faith in the natural corrective power of the marketplace um, is still true. Um, if not, are we comfortable with the marketplace not correcting these ideas? Um, and if we're not comfortable, what might those solutions look like? Um, that's the end of my time, so I don't have an answer for that. But uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>
And I could pitch, I was told I could pretty much pitch and write anything I wanted because nobody at the Bureau really cared what was posted online. <laughs> this was a dream for a 20-year-old. I ended up diving into the true impact of the Patriot Act, uh, the arguments for and against a fixed 435-person House of Representatives, and even the specific triggers for flying the flag at half-staff at federal buildings. And guess what? People actually read these things. They cared, my work mattered, and my bosses remained oblivious. So the next year when I, I went inside the belly of the legislative beast, I worked for a member of Congress, one of my tasks was to oversee our website and e-newsletters. And I'll always remember the time when it hit me. I also handled all of the mail in the office. So it's Capitol Hill office, you manage many jobs. And uh, it really occurred to me at one point while redoing this site that we could better answer about 80% of the questions that came in if we just posted this information online, that many of these were duplicative. And that would make my job a lot easier and it would serve our constituents better, aha. Um, and that if we went beyond that, that our online platforms could be redesigned to create a direct channel to the people. This would be very empowering for them. They might actually start to like Congress. And so later, and later when I led digital for a presidential campaign, I saw the power of organizing tens of thousands of people to host events on the same night across the country. This was 2004, the breakout year for political blogging and on and on. So why am I, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because um, my, initially, you know, I really bought into this utopian idea of the internet for good only sure to solve the world's problems. And in my particular area of politics, what I saw was that it was only Luddites who were fearing this brave new world of unfiltered, unfettered speech, that we were the new guard on the cusp of a revolution with people-powered politics that would flatten the playing field. All voices would be equal, no gatekeepers, from the blogger in the basement to the real estate tycoon on Fifth Avenue. But idealism is a, is a funny thing. So around 2009, the topics for the forums I participated in started to shift from how do we best use this awesome opportunity afforded to us on the internet to elevate our voices and empower others. Um, but is this, not, that, that's, the topic, that's the conversation that we were having. And then it shifted to, is social media ruining politics? This is a conversation many have today. This was about eight years ago, some people starting to have this conversation. I think, as you know about this timing, this is when the platform started to really take over. And I know there's been a lot of discussion here today on that, so I'm not gonna go into that in great detail. But the other thing that happened is that, as the majority of the American public actually started to engage online, the early adopters didn't like what they saw. As social media platforms and their mobile apps started to monopolize our online lives, the danger of these platforms came into focus. People seem to forget when they had this utopian view of the internet that as long as something is used by humans, that inherently there will be um, you know, tension and perhaps hate speech and violence and you know, all the bad things that have happened to the course of human history among humans when they get together in the same space. So I still bet on human nature and its ability to tackle new and unprecedented problems. And I have, let's have little doubt that as long as humans are involved and we're not all just, just robots, that we'll be overcome the challenges of today. But I do see more clearly than ever that the internet has serious destructive potential. 
And adding artificial intelligence to the mix is only going to enhance that potential, that we can't take this space for free expression for granted, or the idea that it's um, not only only going to do good, but it's mainly going to do good. And the worst part about this, and this is something that I focus on a lot more since the, than the last election, is that this only really affects free, this, uh, this effect is greater in free and open societies. Russia and China certainly aren't feeling anything from this wave of populism and, and all the ugliness that comes with it that's sweeping democracies around the world. Their censorship laws and authoritarian systems eliminate the possibility that like-minded individuals dissatisfied with the status quo will be able to find one another and organize to the same extent their counterparts in democratic societies can and do. Now, representative government certainly requires robust public discourse and the free exchange of ideas. The problem is that we're now sharing this public space with everyone else on the internet around the world. The public square encompasses the nation, and because we are free, um, and the internet encompasses the world, we face the threats that we face today. We only recently saw that foreign interference in our democratic process was enthusiastically embraced by many participants in that process, something that would have been inconceivable in a pre-internet era. Filling up our information space with anger and divisive rhetoric has proven to be a useful political tool for demagogic politicians and foreign adversaries alike. Adding in the constant threat of bots and AI is only going to add to the chaos and make it more difficult for the average person to operate independently in any online environment. And even here domestically, all of this great potential that I was so idealistic about uh, a little over a decade ago to empower an unprecedented number of people and engage them in the process has instead is, is more often used and seen for its power to exploit and manipulate at least in a political context. So where's the inspiration in all of this? Um, <laughs> I, I do think our, our options are, are limited because we're at a natural disadvantage against authoritarian governments, as I, as I mentioned. And some of that we're just going to have to live with, although perhaps it can be a point of pride if we're able to figure out how to communicate with one another and regain a sense of national cohesion, even in the face of these efforts to divide us. Digital literacy is lacking. You know, we've long thought about the internet as this wild, wild west. Um, it was this free space, and the first people that came, you know, settled up a, a put an outpost here or an outpost there. There was very little rules of engagement, and that was incredibly exciting for the for, and, and advantageous for the people who were first movers. And then you start to come have the institutions that come in to control. Well, if you think about it in terms of, for example, how the country was founded or, or any society, the 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 institutions and the rules that have to go into place so that it's a safe place for us to, uh, to operate um, may need to come into place here. I don't think we can fully, fully resist that. As much as people lament uh, at times that they, you know, rules coming into place like seat belts or as a mother of two, the requirement of car seats. And I think back to a day when I, back to a time when people could just freely throw their kids in the back seat and take off and how easy that would be for travel and everything else. Most of us, don't want to go back to 
the era of the wild, wild west. Most of us don't want to go back to the 1950s. Um, and even for those who maybe say they do, when you challenge about what that actually means, they, they change their mind. Global internet governance is really the wild card. Um, you know, many countries already severely limit and prosecute speech on the internet. The transition of you know, ICANN to an international group worries some people about the possibility of yielding governance to governments who are hostile to, to speech. These are all issues that I'm sure you've been talking about today. Um, and this global governance you know, can be important. It, has, it is very important. It has an impact on the free speech of 80% of users, many, the great majority of whom will never how to learn how to use a VPN, particularly because they don't have to do so many things, on, do things on their own anymore. But the remaining people who are tech savvy, who are simply looking for ways around regulation, will almost certainly create their own avenues for free speech protections. The internet is not only danger. I see a lot of, of good as well. And is the same way that it's causing, um, it's being manipulated and exploited and causing some of the challenges we face today in our politics. I see expression and collaboration as the answer and our only way out. And without this technology, we would, we would not be able to get there. It's the same way that it, the business incentives feed hyperpartisanship and extremism. Um, they are also bringing movements together in the center to strengthen the center and fight back. I think about examples like, uh, you know, the, in the wake of the travel ban, and no matter what people think about that policy, people quickly being able to mobilize and organize to airports at the, at the blink of an eye. Uh, I'm from Houston, and watching that community come together in the wake of the hurricane starts to feed some of that idealism, that optimism that I one ha once had. Same way the truth is being eroded. Um, there's, I've been talking about as an assault on truth. Being able to access fact and truth is only accessible because of the, the freedom of the internet. People organizing to stand up for the infringement on basic rights and also the need for new leaders and movements that will continue to bring up candidates who represent communities that have often been underrepresented. All of these things can only happen if we continue to protect the internet as a place for free speech and expression. So again, sure, I'm not that sunny idealist about the power and potential of technology to empower the world that I once was. But on balance, and as long as it's humans that still run the internet, and humans have an intrinsic desire for freedom, liberty, and having a voice, I remain optimistic about our future. Thank you. Now, please welcome playwright Jennifer Haley. Hello. So, um, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, we have these gray caterpillars there called army caterpillars. And in the warm weather, they just come out in droves. Um, and they get walked on and they get smashed by cars. And you find out there are two kinds of caterpillars. They're the kind with the yellow blood and the kind with the green blood. 
So I was four years old, and I was sitting on the, the, our front porch, and I had this plastic car I was playing with, and one of the army caterpillars goes by, and I suddenly wondered, hmm, does this one have yellow blood or green blood? So I took my car, and I ran it over. And I, didn't, I don't remember what color blood it had, because my mom walked out at that moment, saw me do it, and she was horrified, horrified. How could you be so cruel, is what I believe she said. And um, I mean, she might have gone a little overboard. This is the woman who, uh, when my father would go deer hunting, told me that he was going off to shoot Bambi. Um, but I did learn, <laughs> or her ex-husband by then. Um, <laughs> I did learn uh, a less lessons about empathy and consequence. And I also believe I became a storyteller so that I could indulge my curiosity and commit acts of violence without actually hurting anything. Um, as introduced, I'm a playwright. Uh, I've been writing most recently uh, about technology, specifically video games, virtual reality. I look at these issues through the lens of psychology, ethics, and culture. Um, and the reason I'm here is that uh, the folks from the CDT saw a play of mine that was done by Woolly Mammoth Theater last year. It's called The Nether. Uh, I first conceived of The Nether in 2010, uh, and I was thinking, I was imagining a world in which virtual, virtual reality realms were as ubiquitous as web pages. Uh, the Nether is a reference to the future internet of virtual reality. This was 2010. It wasn't until 2012 that there was a Kickstarter campaign to fund the development of the Oculus Rift. So at that time, I thought I was looking so far into the future, and I wasn't, obviously. I mean, VR is very sticky still. It's early days, but it is full on right now. Um, so the, the backbone of the story is an interrogation between a, a female detective named Detective Morris who's in interrogating a man named Mr. Sims who has created an online virtual world called The Hideaway. The Hideaway is a Victorian fo a forest with a Victorian house and in it uh, users slash players or as Mr. Sims would call them guests may uh, molest and murder children. However, these children are just avatars. Behind the children are adults. So Mr. Sims uh, makes the argument, he makes several arguments. This is adult consensual role play. This is adults practicing their freedom of speech, their freedom of expression. Uh, he insists his guests have the right to anonymity. He protects their, their identities. And he also claims uh, as a non-practicing pedophile that this virtual world actually gives him and his guests a place to blow off steam so that he is actually protecting children in the real world. Um, the detective still responds to this with the basic moral outrage. Um, and I wrote the first draft of this in a month and I, I didn't do any research at that point. I just kind of like uh, wanted it to just come from whatever I was channeling at the time. Um, and uh, there's a whole layer of the play that involves our emotional attachments online and how we fall in love online and how we uh, act out our family relationships and our psychology online. That's a whole other layer. But the, the, the ethical layer is the one that I'm discussing here. And it was the one that I felt uh, very 
uh, sort of intellectually proud of. Like, isn't this interesting? What an interesting topic. What an interesting ethical question. Um, so I did some research, and I found out that um, Congress passed a law in, in 1996 that uh, treated virtual child porn as the real thing. Um, and the Supreme Court actually struck that down in a six, degree, a six to three decision. They struck that down as unconstitutional. Justice Kennedy said, uh, the prospect of crime does not justify laws suppressing protected speech. That was very interesting. The other thing I discovered as I was uh, surfing the internet, doing my research, is that there had been a, uh, there was a video game developed by a Japanese gaming company called Rape Play. And in Rape Play, you as the uh, first person protagonist uh, could stalk a woman and her two young girls on a train, uh, take, kidnap them, take them home, and do awful things to them. And when I found out this game had actually existed, I've written the first draft of this play already, suddenly my moral outrage kicks in. <laughs> it's no longer an exercise. This had actually happened. Um, and what I found particularly, so as I, I researched further, the game was eventually pulled because the consumers of the other video games were also so outraged that their sales were going down. There were no laws in Japan to, um, to, to, to govern this content, but it was the consumers in a way that governed it. So that game is no longer available. And um, aren't we glad for that? When I thought of like young men playing this game, or young women, I suppose, too. Um, and then the other thing, and just a couple of years ago, I was sent an article by someone, a, a reporter had done a, an interview with a pedophile in Second Life. And this pedophile said many of the things that Mr. Sims says, that I don't touch children in real life because um, in, there are ways for me to do this role play in Second Life. And there are also, there's a mod that can be applied to one of the Elder Scrolls game that allows for uh, uh, role play between child and adult avatars. So all of this was, was, was really interesting, and, and I actually incorporated the idea that consumers could moderate content uh, in my play, The Nether. And I, I decided that Detective Morris, she presents herself as an online representative of The Nether. And we find out that she's part of a shadowy organization that's been founded by businesses and consumers in The Nether to protect that space because what's going on in these virtual worlds has gone so far beyond what governments can, um, can control through laws. Um, I'd also like to, to make a point about virtual reality and, and storytelling in general. Uh, someone said to me recently, you know, this play is so interesting because theater and virtual reality are so different. You know, virtual reality happens over computers and theater is this real experience. And I thought, you know, I don't think that's true at all. I think it's very much the same. I think virtual reality has been around as long as we can throw our consciousness into shared 
spaces of the imagination, we have been in virtual reality. When you read a book, you're in virtual reality. I think of reading a book as a corollary between playing a first-person video game. It's you and the world and the characters of the game. Theater is like a multiplayer environment uh, with the actors inhabiting characters like avatars. So if we think of the world of the imagination as, as, as the space we believe in, then where, where do you draw ethical lines. Um, you know, so Lolita is considered a highbrow piece of literature. But what's happening when I read that book, I am being put in the perspective of Humbert Humbert, who has kidnapped and molested a little girl. Is that any different than Ray Play? Think about it. Um, I've played Grand Theft Auto with my brothers. And so I've pitched people out of their cars and run them over, and I was laughing uncontrollably while I did it. Now, is that, where's the line there? Because I didn't take it seriously, did that make it okay? What if I was playing it very seriously? Um, is that the line? Um, and then the last thing, the last thing I, I, I'd like to consider is that in, in the play, Mr. Sims, he makes this point that what happens there, what happens in, in the hideaway doesn't matter, that it has no consequence. You can do whatever you want, you can be whoever you want to be, and your actions have no consequence. Um, but then Detective Morris responds to him. She says, but who are we if we live lives without consequence? Thank you. That's it for this episode of Tech Talk. If you want to see the videos of Carlos, Mindy, and Jennifer, visit CDT's YouTube page. you also find more videos from the future of speech online there, including remarks from Twitch's Anna Prosser-Robinson, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, and civil rights activist DeRay McKesson. Be sure to check them all out. And finally, a special thanks to our partners for the event, the Museum Institute and the Charles Koch Institute. I'm Brian Wazolowski. Thanks for listening.